welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne, although densely populated almost 625 hectares or 1550 acres of Cologne city area occupied by allotment gardens, that is after all 1.5% of the total city area. In many places however they are endangered as from today's perspective they offer many investors much sought after building land. In the last episode we had ended with the end of the Gallic Empire, whose capital had been our city of Cologne. Due to the reconquest by Emperor Aurelian, this comparatively long-lived renegade empire had come to an end after 14 years in the year 274. Cologne, as well as the other areas of the Gallic Empire, were now reunited with their original Roman Empire. The problems and deficits that had led to the formation of the Gallic Empire had not resolved, however. The Rhineland remained restless. The surrounding area became more and more ravaged. Ironically, however, this caused Cologne, the city, to grow in population in late antiquity. Behind the high walls of the city, many former country dwellers thought they were safe. We can also prove this archaeologically. The city expanded in territory for the first time since its foundation over 300 years ago. More on this later in this episode. But not everything was bad in that time of the early 4th century. Around the year 300, the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great created a short bloom on the Rhine which lasted for about 30 years, so from 310 to 340 about. We will also come to that in this episode. And the best thing will be, we will need absolutely no leap onto the stage of Roman history, as I had to do in several episodes so far. Because Constantine's work is so well documented that we can break it down to Cologne easily. Anyone who is interested in this great and if not one of the most important Roman emperors of all times, well I strongly recommend you to find out more about him. Constantine had a lasting influence on Europe and even the entire West with his actions, but as I said, that doesn't belong in our podcast here. So let's talk about the long-term effects of the now-gone Gallic Empire. In short, rule becomes more local. The developments up to the Gallic Empire had accelerated a tendency very much. The elites came more and more from the surrounding areas of their respective province. This was also the case in Cologne and Roman-controlled Germania. In the year of 260, right before the Gallic Empire was created, Emperor Gallienus had apparently been the last or one of the last city Romans to rule as governor in Cologne. After the end of the Gallic Empire in 274, this changed fundamentally. The governors from then on came almost all from the Gallo-Roman culture circle, from the elite of the province itself. I had already mentioned it in a previous episode. In their minds, Italy and Rome were on par with other Roman provinces for this new local elite in the remote provinces of the Roman Empire. If in doubt, Rome and Cologne were threatened at the same time. Who would the Cologne elite choose? I think the answer is quite obvious. Gone were the days when men residing in Cologne as governor, being socialized in Rome, often highly educated in philosophy and personally embodying the Roman way of life. 
These new elites of the province had served as local Gallo-Romans in the Roman army for the most part. I do not wish to offend any soldier, but the canon of values of these mostly military rulers back then was mostly also dominated by their curriculum vitae. There was no room for Greek philosophy, Egyptian sculptures or other cultural ideas for them. Posthumus, the first emperor of the Gallic Empire, is himself a good example of this attitude and of his background as a Gallo-Roman. Speaking of Posthumus, the subsequent emperors of the Roman Empire were so tired of it. Tired of those provincial elites always seizing the local Roman army and starting civil wars that threatened the stability of the empire as a whole. In response, previous provinces were split up and downsized all across the Roman Empire. This was supposed to make it harder for potential usurpers to concentrate their power easily. The same happened in Cologne's neighboring Roman province of Belgica and the other province, Upper Germania. Cologne's province of Lower Germania, however, remained identical in terms of territory. The province was not divided. With the exception of the city of Cologne, the province was much less densely populated at that time. Only the name of the province changed. The Roman province of Lower Germania became now the Germania Secunda, which just means Second Germany. Well, it's just a term for bureaucrats. But what changed fundamentally was this. What had long been taken for granted by the Romans was now separated. Civil and military administration. They were no longer in the same hands as had been even back to the old days of the Roman Republic. The governor of the province who continued to sit in the Praetorium in Cologne was still the supreme representative of Roman power here. From now on, however, the military was led by a so-called Magister Militium. Like the governors, these commanders were appointed directly by the Roman imperial court. Here in the Rhineland, the Magister Militium was not only responsible for Cologne and its province, but for the entire border on the Rhine. And since most of the soldiers on the Rhine had been recruited for some time from Germanic tribes like the Franks, these generals themselves were now mostly Germanic or Franconian. Many authors of late antiquity but also later generations of historians saw this as the reason of the beginning of the fall of Rome. They said Rome had perished because it was taken over by foreigners. But that was not the reason why Rome fell eventually. The accusation that the Germanic tribesmen in Roman service ultimately helped their free tribal comrades to successfully plunder Roman territory is simply false. There has never been such a thing. These Germans totally lacked the feeling of being a united people. We shall see, in the end, that there are even some important Frankish lords who will fight with all their might against the decline of Roman rule on the Rhine. Those who are already interested in this should take a look at the current set of research. But I do not want to digress, so let's carry on. This development cannot be dismissed, though. Military power on the Rhine was now exercised by local, often non-Roman military leaders in the service of Rome. Such tendencies were evident throughout the empire. In the end, it reinforced the tendency for territories and their people who lived there to see themselves more and more as subjects in their own right and no longer merely as a part of a global empire. So, let's take a look at what Cologne was at the time when Emperor Constantine stayed in the Rhineland. Forgive me, I told you I wouldn't, but we need just a very short note about Constantine's Vita. 
he himself had become emperor in a typical way. His father himself had already been emperor of the western part of the Roman Empire. But why just of the western part, you might ask? Well, after the crisis of the 3rd century, the Roman Emperor Diocletian had tried to save the huge empire by reforming its system of rule. From now on, there should be two emperors, so-called Augusti. One would rule the western part, and the other would rule the eastern part. Each Augustus, and yes, this is really now the ruling title and not the personal Augustus, who had lived 300 years before, would appoint a successor, each of them would. These successor emperors were called Caesars. Here too, this is a ruling title and has nothing in common with the general who had died 350 years earlier. But the crux of the matter was that the respective Caesar could not be related to the respective Augustus who had appointed him. This system was called Tetrarchy, the rule of the four. Even though power was divided among these four, between west and east, on paper, the Roman Empire was still a united political entity. You can compare it like with a car company. Let's say the car company Ford produces cars, more or less sells cars in the world. They have a department for the US and they have a department for Western Europe. Something like that. Still the same company, but with two different branches. I hope I make this clear for you. We can see for ourselves with Constantine how well that worked out, not declaring your own sons as heirs. Constantine's father had been an Augustus, more precisely the emperor of the Western Empire. However, when he died in 306 in what is now modern-day York in England, the troops immediately proclaimed his son, Constantine, the new emperor. So it was almost exactly the same method that we had experienced a century before under the so-called barracks emperors. To make a long story short, because I promised you I would not get into deep detail about Roman history again, after the year of 306, Emperor Constantine gradually managed to take over all power, first in the western part of the empire, to which Cologne also belonged, and then finally also over the eastern part. And bang, this system of the Tetrarchy was history again before it had even worked properly. Constantine found a new dynasty which was based on direct succession through family or kinship ties. Since Constantine was emperor of the western part of the empire from 306, he was actively involved in the defensive battles on the Rhine. For that, Constantine surely was well provided for in the Cologne Praetorium, right? Well, Constantine certainly spent time in the Praetorium in Cologne, that's true, but I'll be honest with you here. For if you were to examine in the early 4th century which city is the more important one in the territory of today's western Germany, well, Cologne in the early 4th century would now draw the short straw. The city of modern-day Trier, I know it's hard to pronounce in English, Trier, T-R-I-E-R, -E had grown to a considerable center of imperial power during this period. Like Cologne, Trier had once emerged as the central place of a Germanic tribe, the Treveri, who were friends of the Romans and were settled by the Romans there. So Cologne and Trier have this same origin in common. Attentive listeners may remember the Treveri. Even Gaius Julius Caesar, this time I'm really talking about the person, had already dealt with them almost 350 years ago. But just like the Ubi in Cologne, the Treveri in Trier had also been largely Romanized. Unlike Cologne, Trier had already been destroyed several times by the Franks and the Alemanni. 
Nevertheless, Trier's location was considered safer and an imperial palace was built there. From here, the way to Rome and Gaul is also shorter than from Cologne. So Emperor Constantine preferred to stay here in Trier. The thing is that with the end of Roman rule a century later, sorry for that spoiler obviously, Trier again lost its importance compared to Cologne. It was destroyed several times and much more violently than Cologne ever had been in that time. Nevertheless, due to its origin as a Roman city, Trier later remained an important player in the world of the Middle Ages, but we will certainly come to that later in this podcast. I'm not saying this to play down the importance of Trier, quite the contrary. I want you to get excited about the city of Trier, precisely because this city was so important in late antiquity, but later on, just one century later, the population of Trier shrank much more than Cologne after the end of the Roman rule. This had the following effect. Many antique buildings of this time are still very well preserved today. Just for a comparison, around the year 300, Trier had 80,000 inhabitants. Today's Trier has 110,000 inhabitants, which is not much more than 1700 years ago. In comparison, Cologne's population has grown many times over. But this also means that during the numerous city expansions later in the Middle Ages, much of what was left in the earth by the Romans was probably lost in Cologne through new buildings. This circumstance can still be seen well in Trier today. The Porta Nigra, the Black Gate, and yes, that is really its name, is in excellent condition. It is a former Roman city gate of Trier and it is totally black, so that why it was called the Black Gate in Latin. In its present condition, it looks extremely intact, like it was built yesterday. You can even walk around in it, it has staircases, windows, everything. I will post a picture of this gate on my webpage. We don't have anything like that in Cologne. Here we only have to be satisfied with a small arch close to the Cologne Cathedral, which was part of the side entrance, and the main arch. We only have a few pieces of stones left of it, but we have nothing which is close to a whole building like that. It is as if your neighbor has a great Porsche, but you only have a single steering wheel of it. So if you want to know what the wall in Cologne, or rather one of the gatehouses, might have looked like, you should definitely go to Trier. There's also an extensive thermal bath complex that's comparatively well preserved. Beside the foundations, there are also numerous walls left of it, and the Roman bridge over the river Mosel is just wow. The pillars of today's bridge in Trier are from the 2nd century and the bridge itself has been in full operation for 1800 years. Even during the Second World War, the bridge was not destroyed, which is truly a miracle because often the German Wehrmacht itself destroyed every bridge behind it on its retreat. Trier is really worth a trip and I really have to go back there when I hear myself now. But back to Cologne. As the provincial capital of Germania Secunda, formerly Lower Germania, Cologne naturally remained important. The protection of a significant part of the Rhineland depended on the defensive capability of this city. Yes, even the entire northeastern border of the empire. If Cologne fell into enemy hands, they would have a well-developed and secured bridgehead. Such enemies would quickly penetrate even as far as Gaul from here. And whoever was in Gaul could also quickly advance to Italy or Spain and from there 
I think you know what I mean. The thing is, small Germanic groups of bandits had already managed this, and that is what most of the Germanic invasions have been so far. Small groups of bandits. You should not imagine that when I speak of invasions of, for example, the Franks into the territory of the Roman Empire, that this is an army of bloodthirsty orcs as in Lord of the Rings. Often it was only a group of not more than 100 people which could act fast and unnoticed until the attack happened. The tactics were not unlike those later used by the Vikings, uh, just without the cool dragon boats on the rivers of course. That is why it was so difficult for the Roman local administration to stop these incursions. There was no solution against such hit-and-run techniques. Until the Roman army in the region was mobilized and arrived on the scene, the thieves were mostly on the loose. However, when a battle took place, the victor was almost exclusively Rome. Posthumus had proved this three episodes in our podcast before when he met plundering Franks and Alemanni against a decent Roman army, and even it was largely occupied by Franconian mercenaries, a band of robbers from Germania had no chance. Now, new hinterland armies were supposed to fend off such hit-and-run techniques with mobile troops across the provincial borders. Can I just say that I like that the German word hinterland, backcountry, was taken into the English dictionary? I think this is really funny, hinterland. Hinterland. Sorry. Uh, let's carry on. Cologne had always been the military headquarter for the entire province of Lower Germania, or rather Germania Secunda, but combat troops themselves had never been stationed here for a longer period of time, with the exception of the governor's bodyguard. Emperor Constantine now changed this. Cologne should not become a victim of a raiding bandit group. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. For the Romans, their empire. Indeed, their civilization ended right on the left bank of the Rhine. The west side of the Rhine still belonged to the Imperium Romanum, along with Cologne. But the other side of the Rhine was untamed in the eyes of the Romans. Sure, of course, Rome had exerted influence here, cutting trees, hunting, digging up mineral resources and maintaining trade enterprises. And it wasn't just that the Germanic tribes were attacking Roman territory. The Romans themselves, of course, loved to carry out raids deep into Germania. This is also proven by archaeological finds in places where no permanent Roman rule had taken place in today's Germany. But as I said, Rome did not settle permanently on the right bank of the Rhine. The present right side of the Rhine in Cologne was therefore considered a foreign country. And funny enough, many people from Cologne nowadays, and being obviously now Germans, still see it that way. Some Colonians that live on the left side of the Rhine even say that in the mountainous district which lies to the east of Cologne, remember the episode about the Cologne lowland, you could already see the peaks of the Himalaya in Asia with Mount Everest. That's just ridiculous, but I think it's funny. Because that means that most parts of today's Germany are in Asia, according to their point of view. So, in order to stop the raids from the right bank of the Rhine, Constantine considered it important to be able to move his troops quickly to this other side of the Rhine. For this very reason, in the year 310, he ordered the construction of the first fixed bridge in Cologne over the Rhine. It was the first of its kind in the whole Cologne lowland. At the same time, the bridge was also used for trade, of course. Trade goods could now be exchanged much more easily between the Empire and Free Germania on the right side of the Rhine. You should never forget, 
The impression may deceive that all the Germanic tribes were united in their efforts to attack Roman territory. No, that depended on the individual tribe that was in maybe need of resources or food that they didn't have because they had a bad harvest or something like that. So by no means, the Germans were still fragmented, even though federations like the Franks and Alemanni had formed already. For even they often disagreed among themselves. Besides many enemies, Rome still had many allied Germanic tribes on the other side of the Rhine, and many Germans, as I told you several times before now, served in the Roman military here. Here in the Rhineland, they were the majority of Roman soldiers. This bridge in Cologne was a masterpiece of late antique engineering. Crises or not, in this field the Romans simply still had what it takes, often better than later generations. The bridge had a length of 420 meters, you know, you can always translate that in yards in your mind if you don't have the metric system, and a width of 10 meters. Stone piers were built into the Rhine for this purpose. Parts of the Rhine had been drained or the foundations had been drained during the construction time so that they could put those piers into the ground. As I said, this is a masterpiece of Roman engineering. The wooden road surface itself lay on 42 decks. This modular construction made it possible to open the bridge several times a day for shipping traffic on the Rhine. Now, a bridge that led directly from non-controlled Germania on the right side of the Rhine to Roman Cologne on the left side of the Rhine was of course a security risk if it was not adequately guarded. Therefore, a massive stone fort was built at the end of the bridge on the right side of the Rhine between the years 310 and 315. If you look at the model of it, it already looks like a medieval castle, even if something like a keep is still missing here. If you want to see something about it and you want to know how this fort looked like, you should definitely take a look at my companion post at thehistoryofcologne.wordpress.com. It's totally worth it, I promise. This military camp was also a masterpiece of late antique engineering. The layout of the fort was, of course, to the highest Roman standard. It measured exactly 141 by 141 meters. The stone walls were at least 330 meters thick, some even 4.06 meters to be precisely. For the construction itself, recycling was already a priority back then. A lot of the building material consisted of rubble, demolished buildings and no longer used gravestones and tomb monuments. This is precisely one reason why, with the few known exceptions like the tomb of Publicius, we hardly have any large tomb monuments in Cologne museums today. The wall was larded with 14 towers. In the middle of the fort was a wide east-west road. It served quasi as an extension of the bridge and then led into an opposite gate on the east side, into deep enemy territory. So if you wanted to cross the bridge from the right bank of the Rhine to Cologne, you first had to walk through the middle of the fort. At some distance around the fort itself, a big and massive ditch made sure that the enemies could not approach the fort just like that. The barracks of the soldiers stationed there were lined up on both sides of the road inside the fort. These single-story buildings were about 57 meters long and 11.50 meters wide. Between the barracks there was about 4 meters of space. And even in the fort there were separate sewers in each alleyway which were made of wood. Roman engineering all the way again. A total of 900 soldiers were stationed here to protect this bridgehead in enemy territory. 
we have a wonderful written source from that time, written entirely in the spirit of Constantinian propaganda. The author was Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived at the time of Constantine and was a great fan of his. Well, listen to his words and judge for yourself. Wait, I have to take a sip of water before that. Wait. Ah, okay. Quote. The Franks are well aware that they could cross the Rhine. You, Constantine, gladly let them cross over to their doom, but they can hope neither for victory nor for mercy. What awaits them may be judged from the torches of their kings. They can think so little about crossing the river that now, although a bridge is being built, they dare even less. You Franks do not even dare to settle in the Rhine region from afar. Even from the rivers in the interior of your country, you hardly ever drink in a feeling of security. On the other hand, the castles lined up at intervals on our side are intended more as decoration than as protection of the border. That once feared shoreland is now being ploughed by Roman peasants without arms. Furthermore, by building a bridge in Cologne, you are mocking the remains of the heart-beaten tribe of the Franks. They should never lose their sense of fear, living constant terror, always back for mercy. But you do this more for the glory of your rule and for the beautification of the border than to have the opportunity, as often as you like, to cross over into the enemy. When the whole Rhine is teeming with warships and our troops are distributed threateningly along the banks as far as the sea. Truly greatest Constantine, nature itself serves your will. It receives reliable and lasting stability if the foundations of the so enormous pillars are now lowered into the depths of the whirlpools. A difficult undertaking, destined for eternal benefit. Certainly, from the begging he brought about the subjugation of the enemy, they humbly asked for peace and took hostages of the noblest race. No one can be in any doubt as to how they will behave after the completion of the bridge, since they have submitted from the very beginning. End quote. <sighs> after reading this out loud, it was a lot more of contemporary propaganda than I thought. Why am I telling you all this? It's only a thought, you might say. Well, this thought called Deutz, then in Latin Devizia, is the nucleus of Cologne on the right bank of the Rhine. Many today Cologne residents themselves still call the right bank of the Rhine Schelzig. There is actually no proper translation for that in English, sorry. Schelzig means that it's the side of the Rhine that you only maybe blink at. In the eyes of those people, the right side of the Rhine is not worth mentioning. Like I told you before, it's a foreign country. That is totally mean. Because you see, the right side of the Rhine in Cologne, especially this district of today, Deutz, has also existed for many centuries now. It is probably because Deutz and Cologne were politically separated after the Roman era. It was not until 1888 that the district of Deutz was politically annexed to the Cologne urban area. A kind of reunification of Cologne after 1400 years approximately. Today Deutz is just as much a natural part of Cologne city center as is the old town of Cologne on the left bank of the Rhine. But we will come back to the relationship between Cologne and its right bank of the Rhine often enough in the course of this podcast, believe me. 
the Roman fort itself is archaeologically extremely well researched. Due to its location, the terrain of the fort has had a varied history of use and construction over time. We will also discuss this from time to time in the course of this podcast. So I'll see what I can put together for the companion post of this episode to give you a good impression. You can find it at thehistoryofcologne.wordpress.com But not only was the right bank of the Rhine in Cologne secured, the actual city itself on the left bank of the Rhine was also reinforced. I had already mentioned it several times, the island in the Rhine which Agrippa had discovered here almost 300 years earlier probably no longer existed around the year 300. Centuries of permissive dumping of garbage between the mainland and the island had led to the siltation of the side arm of the Rhine. This newly gained land in the east of the city was of course immediately used as building land, as Cologne was restricted to the north, west and south by the city wall. Constantine therefore ordered the construction of so-called connection walls. These were drawn further east from the previous old Roman city wall up to the banks of the Rhine. In this way, the Rhine suburb, which had been built there on the former Rhine island, was also protected and included to the rest of the city. Ironically, this new district is now called the Old Town of Cologne, yet it was not built until 300 years after the founding of Cologne. The actual old part of the city is about 150 meters further west on that floodproof hill that Agrippa discovered in 18 BCE. Let's change the subject now. In the last episode we already talked about the Christianization of the late ancient world. Constantine's political and later personal turn to Christianity had enormous effects in Cologne too, for it is highly probable that there was already an active Christian community here before the persecutions ceased. As already mentioned in the last episode, the Roman state changed during Constantine's reign from being an enemy to being a friend for the early Christians. Christianity was not yet a state religion, that would happen later under another emperor, but it received an enormous revaluation and preferential treatment by Emperor Constantine and his successors. And I do not mean that only in terms of the abolition of state persecutions of Christians. In everyday life, it was previously quite common for the majority of the pagan population to attack Christians. Was the harvest bad? Or had an epidemic broken out in your city? Or had someone even interpreted a bad omen? It must have been these strange Christians and their Jesus who were to blame. Let's get them. But now the situation was completely new. If you now wanted to make a career in the Roman Empire or in your province, you had better be a follower of this new religion. This made the new religion very attractive, especially in the urban centers of the ancient world and around the Mediterranean. In front of the western Roman city wall of Cologne, one of the numerous old cemeteries along the main road, a large church for the conditions of that time, was probably built during Constantine's lifetime. It is said that the foundation stone of this church was laid in the year 311. Constantine would still have been here in the Rhineland. It was even said to have been donated by Constantine's Christian mother, Helena herself. However, it is more likely that it happened a little later, sometimes in the first half of the 4th century. It is precisely that church which stands in a place where, according to legend, Saint Gerion is said to have suffered his martyrdom just a few years earlier. The church of Saint Gerion is thus the first church in Cologne that is now also clearly visible in public space. And just as a side note, 
is one of the oldest Christian churches in the world that is still in operation today, at least 1650 years. And that just blows my mind. Its enormous oval central building with nine conches from the late 4th century is always simply breathtaking. The Cologne Cathedral is all well and good, and I love this church, you might know that already, but when you visit Cologne as a tourist, you can also stop by at St. Gerion's Church. The advantage is that it is not so crowded with tourists. Believe it or not, I think that such a building can be a place of rest and tranquility for everyone. Today's St. Gerion is located in the western part of the city center of Cologne. There is something mystical about it. Standing outside and the car traffic and everyday life is noisy and raging. But as soon as you enter the building, everything seems quiet. The world outside can no longer be perceived. And don't forget, as the last episode reminded us, you should not forget the blood column in the oval central building of this church, especially if you're full of sin. But it will be some time before we come to this legend of the so-called blood pillar and what supernatural powers it possesses. Also on the side of today's Cologne Cathedral, it is assumed that a small church room must have stood already at that time there. Probably first as a private house where people met in secret, but which was then converted into an official house of prayer after the end of the persecutions. But here the research is still divided, the necessary proof and evidence are missing. The walls that have been found do indeed fit with such early Christian churches, but absolutely nothing was found that does not suggest a different profane or even private use. No cross, no fish, no Christogram was found on site. Well, perhaps this speaks for the ability of the early Christians to camouflage and hide themselves in the best possible way. And you should never forget the early Christians still had extremely modest liturgy. Pulpits, vestments, hymnals, pews, these are all developments from later times. Without this change of heart by the Roman Empire Constantine, well, simply the history of the West would look completely different. A previously small religious community was not only tolerated, it was greatly enhanced. Constantine preferred to recruit the new elites of his empire from among the Christians. Bishop Maternus of Cologne, whom we learned about in the last episode, was one of Constantine's personal friends and is a good example of this new practice. For the first time we see here initiation of the linking of imperial and ecclesiastical power. Also something that will be typical for the Middle Ages in Europe. And there, we also see the central motive of Constantine. I don't want to offend him, but I wonder if he ever fully understood the central message of Christianity. Rather, he was probably fascinated by the monotheism and oddly structure of this new religion itself, which for him was ideally compatible with his claim to worldly rule. Just as there should be only one God in heaven, so there should be only one ruler on earth. The latter he himself, obviously. Throughout his life, Constantine had also been a follower of a pagan sun god. Only on his deathbed in the year 337 did Constantine then want to be sure of his salvation. He was quickly baptized shortly before his last breath. The question of Constantine's honest or prometic piety, however, fades into the background when we look at the effects of his religious policy. Until his death, Constantine had massively promoted Christianity building and funding new big churches, 
settling fights between different theological controversies that are way too complicated for this episode and of course recruiting the imperial elite mainly from Christians. If he had not ruled for over 30 years, things might have been different. Constantine promoted Christianity so strongly and over such a long period of time that many pagan cults disappeared or fell more and more into the minority during his reign and shortly afterwards. This also had enormous effects on the culture of the Roman Empire. Gladiator fights, for example, were already restricted under Constantine. Thou shalt not kill, as it is written. Then it did not take long until the cities and emperors and provinces stopped financing these fights completely. In fact, only 70 years after Constantine's death, gladiator fights were completely banned and Christianity was made a stable religion so around the year 400. Well, at least there were still horse races you could watch. But considering how formative gladiatorial fights were for the entire ancient world over so many centuries, even long before the Romans entered the world stage of history, this is an extremely rapid development that took place in only a very short time. Constantine's promotion of Christianity was so immense that after him, with only one very short-lived exception, all Roman emperors were Christians until the end of the Western Roman Empire. A third element of Constantine's rule will also have far-reaching consequences for Cologne, the establishment of so-called Herrmeister. This is a German word, obviously, and I didn't find any proper English translation for it. So I will just call it military commander, which is a direct translation of the Latin Magister Militium. I've already briefly mentioned this office of the military commander in this episode as Magister Militium. But if I look at the time right now, we should put this topic into the next episode. So we'll leave the topic of the military commanders for this time. That's not too bad, because we will talk about a very famous military commander in Cologne anyway in the next episode. So, next time we've got lots to do. It's going to be a little rough though, because besides the introduction of the office of the military commander, we will also devote ourselves to the Germanic Franks again. They are now more and more present here in the area around Cologne, quasi-permanent guests. We'll deal with that too in the next episode, because they are not just the Franks. The so-called ethnogenesis, the development of a new people, was not yet completely finished with the Franks, even in the 4th century. It would still take some time until this happens and that they would see themselves as a united force that could write its own history. But more about that next time, when we meet again in the year of 355. A year which will be trendsetting for the future of Cologne. But first, this year of 355 will be a catastrophe for Cologne. Thank you for listening and as always, Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>